Can we turn, well you won't need to read it yet, but we're going to be in a moment looking at Ruth chapter 3. We are going to continue with our series, A Woman Who Met With God, and we're going to talk about planning for hope. I think this is the fourth of our weeks on Ruth. Uh, We don't meet next week, as Steve's already told you, and then the week after, Steve will be finishing in chapter 4. But this time, this week we're going to be in a moment reading from chapter 3. And just to quickly remind you what I said last week, we've seen that the book of Ruth can be taken at several different levels. It is a great love story. It really is. But it's a story about real hesed love, covenant love. It's about faithfulness and sacrifice being part of genuine love, like God's love. That's the sort of love Ruth shows. It's the sort of love Ruth and Boaz show to one another, and Boaz shows to Naomi and the family. And it's also a story about hope, which is very important for us, hope where there was no hope, about redemption and restoration. It's a story that plays an important part in Israel's history, which is at one level why it's in the Bible, because these are real people. There was a Ruth and there was a Boaz, and they were the great-grandparents of the great King David, seen still probably as the high point of Israel's history. And so it's an important thing to see how this family, as it were, came together. But it's definitely a story that God's put in there by the Holy Spirit to show us a number of other things. There's, a, there's, there's obviously a demonstration of love I've talked about, but there's also the providential leading of God in ordinary daily ways. It's not a book that's full of miracles or visions or anything like that, but God's hand is clearly moving in these people's lives. This wonderful little hidden, you know, she just turns up, Ruth, at the moment when um, Boaz comes back and all that sort of thing we saw last week. God's hand in there. But actually, it's not just random at all. This is the lives of people who have dedicated themselves quite in an ordinary way to living God's way. They're people who show God's sort of love and hesed. But Ruth does, even in her comparative ignorance to start with. And that's seen as important. That's how God loves to work with people who've got a heart for him and his ways. So there's all of that. It illustrates God's grace, which is big in the whole thing. Um, Again, I said last week, there are a number of major grace markers in the Bible that tell us that God is a God of grace and mercy, a God who has time for the outcasts and the nobodies. I mean, in the New Testament, you can see it very clearly with, for example, the woman at the well with Jesus, the Samaritan woman who's had five husbands and all the rest of it. But then you get it all through. You get it with Ruth. Ruth is an outsider. She's a Moabite. And she it comes from a very troubled background from an Israelite point of view. She comes from a tribe which are notorious for sin and rebellion. Even their origins are pretty gross. You can read them in Genesis 19. And they, <coughs> excuse me, they are, are, are considered outside the pale. She's branded a Moabite. It's a sort of di- probably a dismissive phrase or a bit critical phrase that comes out sometimes in the mouths of others, like the young foreman of Boaz. But actually, God has real time for her. She is brought in and now comes to know the grace and acceptance of God. Finally, because of all that I've just said, for centuries, Christians, really all through church history, have seen the story of Ruth and Boaz as a God-given picture of our relationship with Jesus. If you like, of the bride of Christ with Christ, or of, of particularly individual believers in their relationship with our great kinsman redeemer. 
which is what Jesus is. And that's what we looked at last week. We were looking at this Boaz as a picture of Jesus Christ, Ruth as a picture of us, who were without hope, without God, who came to know and love Jesus, become part of the bride of Christ, co-heirs with him, taken from being impoverished nobodies outside the covenants of God to be his treasured possession and his bride. And that's where we're going to continue focusing this week. Last week we saw the encounter in the harvest field. This week we're going to look at the encounter on the threshing floor. And that is in chapter 3. Maybe before I read it, I need to give you just a little bit of focus because I love this sort of detail. The threshing floor is the place where the grain was threshed, surprisingly enough. But we need to talk about it a bit for a moment. Because threshing, which was where you beat the, the, the grain, probably wheat and barley largely, and having beaten it, you threw it up in the air with a winnowing fork, a big wide sort of fork thing. You threw it up in the air and, 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 and the wind carried the chaff away and the heavier grain fell near you. And you were doing this to separate the chaff from the grain and then eventually you'd be able to gather it all together in a pile and have good grain. It was done in the evenings. It was done in a very carefully chosen place where there would be a breeze, an evening breeze that would carry the chaff away. It wouldn't be too strong so that everything blew away. Uh, carry the chaff away. And it, you could do it through the evening as the sun set. And then probably as it got colder, you, you could no longer do it. And so then you gathered the grain together and heaped it up. And there was often associated with this threshing feasting and joy. It was a happy time. It was hard work. It was very hard work. But it was traditionally a place where there was a, a meeting of people. It was traditionally like that. Probably we've got to think a little bit of our own harvest festivals and uh, maybe barn dancey sort of feel. So you, you, what you've got is that everybody's a leveling. It's a, it's a great leveling about threshing. Everybody's there in these sort of days. So Boaz is there with his work people. They're all there together working hard, trying in a few hours to get it all threshed. If it's been a good harvest, there's a lot to do. And you get it all, you work hard. And then as the breeze, set, as it gets colder and the breeze is gone, you begin to feast and you, you all have a happy time together drinking as well probably traditionally probably boy did meet girl a bit in those settings and then you all stayed there sleeping there why because you've got to protect it because this grain before you've had a chance to do much else with it could be stolen by other people and that that was a real issue Uh, and Gideon is threshing in in a hidden place to protect it in the story of Gideon but actually there was also wild animals or animals generally that you know rats and things I suppose you just wanted to keep it safe and so you, having done everything, you all slept there. Again, a leveling thing. So you'd have the master and the servants all sleeping together. And the threshing floor comes out a number of times in the Bible. And it's a, it's a, it's a motif, we might say, that you can, if you're interested, you can see it. There's a number of important things that happen on threshing floors, important moments. And there's a sense that God says, and this is something I want to say to you, God says there are threshing floor moments in all our lives. And, and they are not all bad. They are difficult times, some as hard work times, but there's a joy about them because there is a purifying. There is a bringing through of the corn and the grain. There's a getting rid of the rubbish. And that motif, that concept is there throughout Scripture. Let me give you one little example in the New Testament when Jesus talks to Peter and the disciples. Could we put up Luke 22? Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. 
And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. There is a sense in which God allows Satan to sift us, like he did the disciples. It's almost like Satan can be used as God's winnowing fork. And sometimes there are times of winnowing which are, there is demonic activity. But the father has his eye on the whole thing. And there is a separation going on. And in the middle of the difficulty, there is also a sense of joy that the reality of a faith or the, 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 the purifying that is going on is something to rejoice over as well. So threshing floors, though they can be sobering and challenging and moments of, of, of crisis even, are also moments of ultimate joy and delight. Now here on the threshing floor of Boaz, Ruth is going to have something that ties in with all that. It's going to be a scary thing. It's going to require courage, but she's going to emerge from this night with a massive hope of being something she would have never dreamt of a few weeks before, of her widowhood completely discarded, Moab completely left behind, belonging to a new family with a totally different future in front of her. Everything is really decided at the threshing floor particularly between Boaz and Ruth. That's where their hearts are joined. That's where whatever might have come between them goes away. Things are still to be done, as we'll see, but there's almost a sense that whatever else, these two are committed to each other, and it will be well in the end. Let's read it. Let's read Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'I am your servant Ruth,' she said." Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my guardian redeemer, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, 
he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Fantastic story, wonderfully gripping little story, beautiful story, but in it, as we're seeing, there is quite a lot for us to learn. And I think we could just see some general things to start with, just a couple of quick things. This story is about faith and love. And faith and love both involve risk. You can't be moving in faith without risk, and real love always involves risk. And in this story, Ruth risks and Boaz risks, both of them. They risk reputation, they risk rejection, they risk failure, they risk shame and disappointment. Here's the news you've got to hear. You can't move in faith, you can't move in real love without risk. There'll be moments of disappointment, there'll be moments when things don't work out as you, you, you hoped, but you will never really know till you try. And risk is risk. Why do you say that? Well, risk means that the outcome is not certain. Risk means that there is potential for failure and disappointment. And I think in our modern world, we need to understand that. We have a strange culture which almost wants to be risk-averse in every single way. But life has risk, and if you're going to do anything worthwhile for God or even in life, you have to embrace risk. And Ruth does that, and actually Boaz does it. There is risk in all that they do. Of course, pride and fear don't like risk. So if you've got a lot of pride, or if you're riddled with fear, you will struggle with risk. But when you get to a place of faith, motivated by love, you can embrace the risks involved. And that's what happens with these two dear people. We're going to look quickly, not quickly, at Ruth, more quickly at Boaz. Last week, we we spent a little longer, I think, perhaps on Boaz. I'm not sure can't remember the timings. But we're going to start with Ruth this week, and we maybe spend a little longer with Ruth. So let's look at her. Ruth demonstrates real, active, risk-taking faith. She pursues Boaz for something. Remember, in looking at this, we're learning about us with Jesus and God. That's my main thought here, and I think it's in harmony with historic Christianity. That this is a picture, I don't think it's out of joint with the, church, with the Bible's interpretation of things either. It's a God-given prophetic picture. Ruth pursues Boaz for something. She is humble, but she's also bold. What an interesting balance. You can be humble and bold. They are not self-contradictory. She behaves wisely, and yet there is also a willingness to risk and be reckless. There's a recklessness to what she's about to do when she goes right down to this man's feet and lies at his feet. And there's a sort of wisdom because Naomi's counsel is along the lines of what she's doing, but she has an ability, Ruth this is, to go a little bit beyond where even Naomi seems to suggest. And she presses in, in verse 9, a little beyond, I think, what Naomi advises. She begins to say, make me your wife. I mean, that's in effect what she's saying. When she says, cover me with your garment, you're a guardian redeemer, it seems to be saying, will you take me as yours? That's sort of what she's saying. Will you take me as your wife? Take me as yours. Which is why Boaz responds with such 
delight. You know, you haven't gone after younger men. So clearly, it's not just about look after our family. There's something more intimate going on, and Ruth presses beyond perhaps what might be wise, certainly in that culture, and is quite bold and says, make me your wife, be my husband as well as my redeemer. Now, I think all of that tells us a lot about real Christian, real Christian faith, real Christian faith. It is about pursuing God and seeking, hear this, relationship with him. Ruth does get a lot of food again. (laughs) She gets a huge bundle of barley to take home, but she is going well beyond asking for food. She is not asking, please look after me for the rest of my life. Please make sure I don't starve. She is going well beyond that. She's asking for relationship. She's pressing in and saying, I want to be yours. I want you to be my husband. I want to bear your children. There's lots of implications here. I want you to save our family and restore it. She calls it our family very movingly in verse 9. She is the Moabites and she's now associated with it. She's moved boldly beyond where she was at the beginning. This is our family. I'm looking for, it's not just herself, she's thinking Naomi, she's thinking, look, look, bless our family. Please give hope to our family. She is going boldly right into the very presence of Boaz, finding where he is, lying at his feet, totally vulnerable, and seeking his grace, asking big things. I think that is an amazing example of Christianity, of what a real Christian experience is. It's not just asking for the daily stuff, please. It's not wrong. Jesus said, pray for your daily bread. But it's not just doing that. It's pressing in to know him and saying, I want to be yours. I want you to take me totally as your own. I want to be totally associated with you. All you are, I want to have. And I want you to have all of me. That is where she gets to, and that's where real Christian faith gets to. It's an amazing lesson. Let's enjoy some of the detail for a moment. Let's look at verse 3, which I I think is lovely detail. Naomi is the older, worldly wise woman. And look what she encourages Ruth to do. Just read verse 3 again. It's going to go up on the screen. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. Don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. It's the first sentence, really. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Now, you could gloss over that or just slightly nod to it, not think about it. This is a powerful moment. Do you know what Naomi is doing? She's saying, put away your widow garments. This young woman has been dressed as a widow, almost certainly, like in this culture. She's been dressed in a drab, perhaps black even, garment. She's a young widow. She's dressed in a widow's garment. And Naomi's saying, it's time to put your widow garments away. Put your widow clothes away. Put on your beautiful clothes. I think this is powerful. Stop looking back. Now is the time to look forward. When you go into the presence of Boaz, don't go as a widow. Go as a beautiful young woman. Don't go as a widow. Take off your mourning garments. Take off your widow's clothes and put on your beautiful clothes. Put on your best clothes. Wash. Perfume yourself. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There is no doubt that Ruth was an attractive woman. But her her fundamental attraction to Boaz is her character. You can pick that up in 2, chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. It's not on the screen, we talked about it last week. But Boaz is attracted to her because he's heard of her godly character, what she's done for Naomi. But listen to this, 
please just let him a heart. There is also a rightness, ladies, and I mean this as trying to be really careful in the modern world. There's a rightness to being confident about your appearance. I don't mean glamming up in an unhelpful way and all the uh, horrible things that are talked about today, but I do mean making yourself attractive. This is not wrong. The bride does make herself attractive in Scripture. In Scripture, the potential brides make themselves beautiful. Careful reading of the Bible will never give you the impression that God wants women to be drab, nondescript, and invisible. God does not want women to be drab, nondescript, and invisible. You would not get an idea of a burqa from reading the Bible. That's not the Bible. This is not inappropriate. This girl is not going to seduce him. She's going to, as a supplicant, she's going to ask him for things, but she's not going as a seductress. And this, there is a rightness. Of course there's modesty. Of course there's, there's, there's got, godly morality. But there's a rightness in, 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 in looking beautiful. Sometimes it's right to make yourself attractive. And certainly in the context of relationships, I think the Bible would deeply support that. We, as the bride of Christ, are to make ourselves attract, make ourselves ready for our groom. There's no suggestion, as I said, that Ruth is going to seduce Boaz. She's not going to seduce him. She's going as a supplicant. But she's going into his presence beautified, ready to say, I can be yours. Basically, this is the big thing. She's going with an eye on her future, not her past. And when we go into the presence of God, we need to go with an eye on our future, not our past. Take off your garments of mourning. Stop looking back to what you were in Moab when your husband died. Take that off. Look forward to what you're going to be when Boaz is your husband. Go expectant. Go saying, I am yours. I want to be your wife. I would say to us, in the words of Scripture, we need to learn to put off our sackcloth and put on the garments of praise. Take up beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Your past has been dealt with. There is a hope and a future. Your future is to be with Christ forever. Let's dress appropriate to our future. Amen? Let's pray. Let's let's not keep going around with our widow's garments on. There's a time to take them off. There's been a time for mourning, but that's past. Now is a time to take them off, says Naomi. Now's a time to dress with an eye to your future and to your future husband and spouse. Wash yourself. I mean, Jesus has washed us clean and loosed us from our sins, but we do need to keep ourselves clean. When we go into God's presence, when you go to pray, when you go to worship, I hope you think about that. Have you confessed stuff that you know is wrong? That we pick up, we all pick up dirt. They picked up dirt and dust on their feet in the Middle East. That's why Jesus talked about washing feet. And he talked to Peter, only need to wash your feet. If your whole body's washed, it's only your feet. You remember that little interchange with Peter? Well, there's something here that, that when we come into the presence of Jesus, we need to be conscious of who we are and where we've been. And maybe we do need to confess sins and, and, and get them cleansed. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Let's go into his presence prepared. When you come for worship on Sunday morning, 
When you go to any group gathering where you worship, on your own, as you come into the presence of God, it's not inappropriate to somehow just clean yourself up. Just wash yourself. You're coming into the presence of your Lord and Saviour, but also, in a sense, your lover and your friend. But just prepare yourself. Watch, Hebrews 12, verse 1 says this. I'm going to pop it up. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then it will go on to say, looking unto Jesus. Why don't we throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles? Can I encourage you? Be like, this isn't like heavy, or oh, we're not to do this and we're not to do that. This is love motivated. This is love motivated stuff. This, get off the robe, old robe, wash yourself. This is a delight. This is grace. She's not saying, oh, I've got to wash now. Have I? Oh, change my clothes. Right then. I mean, goodness me. Come on. Dress in the garments of salvation. Throw off. Put off the old ways. Put them off. Put on Christ. Clothed in Christ. You've been washed and cleaned. Wash yourself. Smarten up in Jesus. Understand he loves you. He's looking for you. He delights in you. Come into his presence dressed in beautiful garments that he's given you. Hallelujah. Put on perfume. Put on the anointing oil. We need the Holy Spirit. Come into his presence anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's done it all. He's provided everything. We need to be anointed people. We need to have an aroma of Christ about us. We need to smell nice when people meet us. Come on, put off your old robe. Put off the old mourning garments. Put away the widow's garment. Put on your beautiful clothes. Wash yourself and put on the anointing perfume, anointing oil of perfume. I think this is a God-given picture for the Christian, for the Christian engaging with her Lord and his, his Lord, for the Christian going forward, even to petition, even to worship, even to come into his presence. Let's do that. Let's think like that. Now she's going, dressed attractively, to meet with Boaz. But let's be very clear. Ruth is bold, but she is on good ground. Now let's get that. It's the next point, really, but it sort of all comes together, so bear with me. Not all numbered, all right? Not numbered points. So there's points. Just get them in your spirit, all right? So although she's bold, you think, oh, she's a bit bold, and she's dressed up to, to look attractive, she's not relying on that for Boaz to like her. Wow, she's nice. He's not, she's not relying on that. What's she relying on? Two things. She is on good legal ground. This is a kinsman redeemer. He is part of the wider family that she now belongs to. She is part of his wider family. She descri- describes them as our family. Will you please be the redeemer for our family? You're one of our family's kinsman redeemers. That is true. She's got legal basis. And the second thing, she has strong relational ground to stand on. Because in chapter 2, as we saw, Boaz has clearly shown favour and acceptance to her. She has been welcomed to his table to eat. 
She's just a poor, gleaning Moabite widow. And he has her, as we saw last week, he has her in, gives her wine and bread, a wine and, and yes, bread, and then, and then gives her loads of uh, grain, two weeks' wages, effect, to take home and all the rest of it. She's already had permission and provision from him. So there's relational ground. She knows this guy is giving her favor and grace. She's not blundering in. She's not brashly getting in, dressing up to the nines and flicking her eyes and hoping to get away with something. She is going to meet someone. She knows she's on legal ground. He's part of their family. She knows he's on relational ground. He's shown her love and acceptance already and favor. Now that's how we go into the presence of God. You don't go in barging in, oh, you owe me this, you, oh, 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 I've got a right to this. No, no, you go in humbly, but you go in boldly. You know the legal ground. You stand on the ground of Jesus. Jesus has died and is risen. His blood avails for you. You can come boldly through the new and living way that Jesus has opened up. You can come to the throne of grace and ask for help in time of need through Jesus as Hebrews so clearly again and again tells us, there is a boldness that comes with knowing we stand on legal ground, knowing this is our kinsman redeemer. This is our family. I can come and talk to him. And relationally, he said, come. He said, you're my friend. He said, I, I love you. You're, you. You know, you're not servants, you're friends. So we're coming on good relational ground. We know we have a legal right and we know that he accepts us and loves us. That is the confidence, shall we say, that gives us boldness in worship and in prayer. Get it into your spirits in prayer. You do come as a petitioner. You do come as a supplicant. You do come humbly. But there's a boldness to it. There's a rightness to it. Dressed beautifully but confident that she can be there. It's a nerve-wracking time, humanly, but there's still a, a confidence. She knows she'd found grace in Boaz's eyes, and now she's looking for more. This is interesting. She's looking for a much bigger thing. In her case, she's looking for him to completely change her life, to turn her from a poor widow into a beloved bride. She's looking to become probably, not this is a driving motive, someone who would be actually wealthy and in standing in the community. That's not her motive. But what a change. She's looking from becoming a poor Moabite, Moabite widow to become the bride of a man of standing in the community, Boaz. And she's pressing in to, to, to get his favor. I just want to say, as Christians, I think we can settle for less than the best. And I think most of us, including me, do. I think most of us settle for something less than the best, including me, I openly say. That doesn't mean we're not, we don't belong to him. It doesn't mean we're not safe for eternity, because I think we are. It doesn't even mean we don't get provision. I mean, but, but Ruth is looking for a lot more than being a well-fed gleaner. She's looking for a lot more than being a well-fed gleaner. And she feels she's got grounds for it. She's saying, cover me with your garment. Make me your family. Make me your wife. Give me what I cannot have, a home and a family. That's what she's saying, but beautifully and appropriately. Not as my right, but as asking a bigger favor of you. Asking for your favor and grace. Now, don't you think the New Testament encourages us to come like that to Jesus? I think it does. I think we're encouraged. You know, you can have so much more. Press in and ask. 
saying, make me this. Lord, give me this. Lord, I want more of you. I want more of all you've got for me. I want to be in the best that I can be with you. I want to know you more. I want to worship you more. I want to please you more. I want to experience you more. That is the driver that you can have, and I hope you do have. I hope I have. I do at times, and then I think, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm getting all contented and flat and jogging along. But we're not to be like that. We're to press in. We're not to just say, look, I've got enough food for two weeks. Oh, I expect I can go back and ask him for another lot next week, and then I have another lot of two weeks' food. And I think Boaz would have certainly looked after them. But actually, she's going in for far more. And I encourage you. There's a song, isn't there? There must be more than this, which I never used to quite like, but I've got it now. I think I've learned what I mean. I don't think it's a cry of empty complaint. I think it's a cry of spiritual hunger. There must be more than this. I used to think it was a bit of a moany song. I don't know why. But I don't think it is. It's just because <laughs> it's the opening line. It probably doesn't quite work quite sometimes. It's all very subjective, isn't it, John? But it's a good song. But basically, basically, the, the sentiment works very well. And it's saying, Lord, I'm hungry for more of you. It's a Ruth heart. And I trust that we get it and have it ourselves. Remember, this isn't heavy. There's a sense of joy about it. But it is quite a precious an almost delicate time. Let's quickly just say something about Boaz. We're thinking about Ruth with us. Now we're looking at Boaz for a minute. And I think it's an amazing scene. It, Boaz's response is quite uh, beautiful as well. Now let me just talk about Boaz for a moment. Remember in Boaz, I'm partly thinking of God. I'm thinking of Jesus. Boaz is perhaps a picture of the Lord. In one sense, Boaz has everything. He's a man of standing. He clearly has plenty of resources, much to share. He's clearly good to everyone, not just to Ruth. He's good to his servants. And he clearly has his servants' affection and respect. But he doesn't have a bride. There's something lonely about Boaz. He's obviously getting slightly older than the average young man around. That comes out in what he says. He doesn't have a companion, a helpmeet a lover. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have children. He doesn't have a family. In that context, that's seen as a little bit lonely. It's not always so. I'm not making a point about modern singleness. But there's something there that Boaz is a little sad about, a little lacking. And yet he's got everything. But he can't have a wife who is anything but a chesed woman. This is a godly man and he needs a chesed wife. That's why he's attracted to Ruth. Now, what I'm about to say, I I feel I have to be reverent and careful about. I have to tread carefully. But I see something in here of the heart of God. I think Christ wanted a bride. I mean, you can't say God's imperfect. You can't say God didn't have. The Trinity had a lovely love relationship between the three of them. But there's almost like an ache in God's heart. He wants something, someone, a people of his own, companions who stand with him, one with whom he can share his heart and share his glory. And when he made Adam, we find this amazing picture in Genesis that God walked in the garden with Adam. It's like he got a friend. (laughs) I mean, there's a companionship in the Trinity, but there's also something else that's added. And I tell you, Christ wants a bride. We are not just all about us. Oh, God's been really good to us. 
and saved us and forgiven our sins, which he has, he wants us as his companion. We are co-heirs with Christ. He wants to share his glory with us, to share his heart with us. He wants us not as his servants, but as his bride. He, no more than Boaz really is going to be content just to have Ruth as another one out there who he's very good to and who respects him and thanks him for his generosity and acknowledges that he's a great guy. He wants something more than that. And Ruth is responding to his love. He's re- she's responding to his grace. And he thinks, oh, well done. You have the qualities I'm looking for. You're not running after young men, just looking for the... You, or richer men even, because there obviously were others around. You are what I thought you were. My partner, my hesed woman, my covenant partner. And I want you to know that is something of the heart of God. He's looking for those who will share his heart, who don't just want what they, they're not just like angels, they're his servants and do what he requires. He's not, they don't just want what they can get out of him, they want him. They want him. They want to share his heart, they want to be his. And that is what Jesus has achieved and looks for, if I can put both those words together, in what he's done at the cross. That, he's opened the door for that, we can be co-heirs with Christ. We, you can change the picture and say children of God or the bride of Christ. But they're all pictures telling us about this intimacy, this family. We, I find this incredible, I, be, I have become part of the family of the creator of the universe. I'm a son of God. Don't matter which picture you use. It's a bit difficult as a man to talk about being married to Jesus, but there is an appropriateness to it. I, I'm part of the bride of Christ or I'm a child of God. I am not just a saved servant. And I'm not just turned into like another angel. I was below the angels, I'm raised above the angels. That's Hebrews. It's amazing. God was looking for something in redemption. There was a lover, a lover heart in redemption that we only barely understand. Perhaps in eternity we'll get more of it. But there's a lover heart. It's not just for us. There's something for him. And we need to respond. We need to get that. Help us in our relationship. Verse 9. Let's quickly put these verses up. Verse 9. Who are you? I'm sorry, we're not going to have much time for worship. But maybe we're worshipping as we look at the word. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. I think that challenge obviously is a a fairly abrupt one because he's a bit startled and frightened. But actually, look at her response. I am your servant Ruth. And then she later says... You are the guardian redeemer of our family. Wow, she gets it right. She does not respond, Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be here. I know I shouldn't be here. Does she? I am your servant Ruth, part of your family. Brilliant, well done, girl. And you know, God would say to you, Who are you? Sometimes he challenges you to make you say it in the best possible way. Not that I think Boaz thinks like this because he's just scared. But, but God wants us a picture in here. Who are you? Can you say, I'm your servant, John. I'm part of your family. Is that how you respond when you come in the presence of God? Who are you? What are you doing here? I'm your servant, John. I'm part of your family. I think it's a great response. And he responds back. She goes on to say, which I think is also important, make me, in effect, your wife. Put your garment out. Put your um, 
sorry, spread the corner of your garment over me. Make, that's a sort of way of saying, make me yours. Take me as yours. It's a powerful moment. And his response is wonderful. He, Ruth, I'm sure, listened carefully and with a beating heart. What was his response? His response is totally positive. In a sense, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. What a response. And it's our response. It's our, our kinsman redeemer's response. Look at John 15, verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, verse 7. That's our kinsman redeemer's response. If you are mine and I am yours, ask what you want and I will do it for you. Do we treat that seriously? I don't mean like, oh, I want this and I want that and a bit of wanty-wanty. I mean the sort of relationship thing. You abide in me and I abide in you. You can ask what you want. That's how Jesus responds to us. That's how we respond back to him. And then quickly we come back in the story in verses 12 and 13, which we're not going to linger over today, back to the real human uh, little suspense bit. Because actually, Ruth says, Boaz says, I'm not the closest one. There's one closer. And that's an interesting bit that's going to pick up next week. And, 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 but he says to her, you know, if at all possible, I will make you mine. If there is a way, in effect, to redeem you, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. That's what he says to her. If there, I mean, he gives her absolute confidence he's going to fight for her. Absolute confidence he's going to do all he can. And then finally, one more precious moment in verse 15. Let's put it up. Bring me the shawl you're wearing. Hold it out. She did so. He poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. She is not going to leave his presence empty-handed. And I tell you, Jesus never lets you leave his presence empty-handed. You never come out of his presence feeling, what was that all about? You come out loaded with blessing. More than enough again. This is a huge amount of grain, relatively speaking. More than enough for Naomi and Ruth. She's almost bowed down with carrying it. He has to help her put it on her back. But I think there's a beauty to this moment, which I don't want to lose. We won't have time much to sing, but I don't want to lose it. Because she is no longer at his feet. This is an intimate moment. She stands up. They're pretty well face to face. And he says, take off your shawl. So I assume this was a sort of head covering thing. And she takes it off and he fills it with grain. So they're really face to face. There's, there's something of elevation goes on here. There's something of standing together. She's no longer lying at his feet. I'm sure, humanly speaking, their eyes met. Probably there was a lot of warmth and love between their faces. I'm sure there was. But there's a sense in which he loads her with something face to face. And I feel we can come into the presence of Jesus face to face. And he doesn't just ask us to lie on the floor. I mean, sometimes it's appropriate. I lie on the floor sometimes. But sometimes he wants you to say, look, just see me. Look at me face to face. Let me load you with blessing. It's an anticipation of what she... It's meant to be seen as that by the book. It's subtly written story. It's an anticipation you will be mine. Probably may even have a hint you will bear children, my children, with the fruitfulness, etc. But you can read too much perhaps into it. But there's certainly a sense of her, his acceptance of her. There's a sense that, you know, I will fight for you. This, this will happen. This will happen. And he goes. And she goes home to Naomi. And this is where we are going to finish, but we've got to have this one. Let's put up 16 and 17. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me six measures of barley 
because he said, don't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So he's thinking about Naomi as well. But I love the little detail here. How did it go, my daughter, is an English translation of something that's quite difficult to translate into good English. Clearly, Naomi recognizes who's come. But the literal Hebrew would be, who are you, my daughter? And if you've got an NASB or some other Bibles, they give that to you in the margin. The literal Hebrew is, who are you, my daughter? And one commentator I read said, really, the most literal way of translating it would be, listen to this, who are you now, my daughter? I think it's beautiful. You see, what she's saying is, have you become his betrothed? Do you belong to him? Yeah, how did it go is okay, but it sounds like coming back from going to Tesco's or something. (laughs) Or you went, you know, played a round of golf with your friend. But it's, who are you now, my daughter? Now, she's asking what happened. So the way Ruth answers is not, oh, I'm Ruth, because she obviously knows she is, so it's not, who are you? It's she tells her everything that happened. Are you his betrothed, is what Naomi's asking. Are you his betrothed? It's a significant question. And I want to say it's a question that we will get asked by life. We will get asked it nicely. We might even get asked it aggressively. Do, who are you now? Do you know who you are? There's two who are you questions in this story, as you've seen. One is Boaz asks her, who are you? And she answers, I'm your servant, Ruth, part of your family. I think that's a lesson for all Christians. We come into the presence of God, and and when he says, who are you? We say, we are your servants, and we're part of your family. Please cover us with your garment. And then there's this sort of friendly challenge or inquiry of Naomi. Who are you now, my daughter? And as you go through life, you need to say, I I am my beloved's and he is mine. I belong to Jesus. I am betrothed to the King of Kings. That's who I am now. Once upon a time, I was a widow from Moabite. I'm not a widow Moabite now. I'm the betrothed of Boaz in all but fact. Now, there's some important stuff to happen in the real story. But that's what she, she tells. Well, this is what happened, and this is where I'm at, and this is the grain he gave me. And Naomi immediately knows what that means. She said, this man's going to sort this out. The, 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 the chapter ends with, he won't rest till he's sorted it out. Isn't that beautiful? Naomi knows there's all subtleties here. Naomi knows what that all means. As, as Ruth says, well, he said this, he said that, he told me he'd do all he can, he, he gave me all this grain. We stood face to face in the early dawn, and she says... He's going to sort this out. (laughs) Who are you now? 